0: Welcome to the Open Book Unbound podcast. Morning, Marjorie. Hey, Claire. How are you in this new year? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Just uh, getting my house back in order after Christmas and still finding little bits of wrapping paper and pine needles everywhere I look. The odd bit of chocolate under the sofa. <laughs> not, Not quite that bad, but definitely walked through the house in bare feet the other day and discovered some pine needles. I think it's really funny that January always feels like a time to sort of freshen up
1: and clear things out and get rid of all the old stuff and start again and yet it's the time of year I also have to deal with all the inane Christmas tiny bits and pieces that I bought for the children usually at the end of the year thinking oh I'll stuff that in their stocking and then of course one month later I think why is that still in my that little bit of nothing that silly game what's it still doing here you know what looks like really Charming in December sometimes looks a bit like tat to me in January.
0: I also feel like January has got that still sort of cozy in, long nights, hibernate quality, so I'm not quite there yet with wanting to spring clean. Feels like the right way to start a year for me, kind of... Thinking again about
1: what this year's going to bring and what I'd like it to bring, and you know, all those resolutions that I never do, but feel really good about this time of year and really think ahead into each month of the year and where I'd like to be and who I'd like to see. So, I actually really love this time of year. I'm always ready for the almost austere nature of January by the end of December, particularly my stomach is because I eat so much over the holidays that I'm ready for a bit of old clothes and porridge, as my granny used to say. Back to the ordinary things, which somehow always feel kind of like a new chance this time of year
0: for me. And that's a beautiful segue, not planned at all by you, Marjorie, into our theme for this month, which is renewal and new starts and things anew. And we've got a a beautiful story from Lorraine Thompson, one of our fabulous lead readers who supports our groups up in Alephul and in Koygach, and we'll hear more about Koygach in the story. And then a fabulous poem by Jay Gow from his collection Imperium, Not an Equal too many. So, thanks to both Lorraine and Jay for sharing their work with us. Yeah. Do you want to get us started? Yeah, I can do shipbuilding on the far northwest coast of Scotland lies a peninsula known as Coigach. The ch sound comes from the back of the throat, echoing the slow pull of the tide on a shingle beach when the day is calm. The meaning of Koygach refers to the five townships contained within the almost island. But our story, like all good tales, takes place at the edges, below the strand line, within the mysterious zone belonging to both land and sea. It is here, in the intertidal, that our heroine dwells. She is small and slight, with eyes the colour of bladderwrack, and skin as smooth and pale as mother of pearl. These things we know, but her name we do not, and so for the sake of her tale we will call her Koygach Lass. She is a shy creature, so elusive there are those who doubt her existence. Pay no heed, to the naysayers and cynics, for she is every bit as real as her water-bound cousins, the blue men of the Minch. But while those rogues concern themselves with the business of raising storms, capsizing boats and drowning sailors, our Koiga lass devotes her time to shipbuilding. She scours the shoreline for material, picking her way round the coast from Lagnasalia, Salt Hollow, to Rue dulich difficult point, then on to Bag-Fuick, Periwinkle Bay. Heading south, she goes around rowan Avil, sharp point of the hill, searching rock and pool, raking over craggy inlets before probing the caves at Gewa and Da Yenik, gully of the crows, always looking, forever gathering, as she traverses Camus and Niech, the bay of the deer. All she collects has been brought here by current and tide, carried by the flow, abandoned by the ebb. Tatters and threads, ripped and in patches, blue dungarees, herringbone dresses, roiled by the surge, chewed by the fishes, taffeta ball gowns, silk smoking jackets, brined to the max with the sailors' regrets, corduroy slacks, seersucker shorts, roiled by the surge, shredded on rocks. Torn by time and tide, tossed by mighty waves, her bounty sweeps in from beyond the Gulf of Mexico. A profusion of flotsam heading her way, spinning through the straits of Florida, coasting by the carolinas before hitching a lift on the north atlantic drift and being carried all the way to the shores of coigach where others see rags and refuse debris and trash she feels the pain contained within those lost and forsaken remnants despair sorrow loss Piece by piece, she gathers them anguish envy greed rinsing them out, pain, suffering, despair, before tenderly laying them, anxiety, poverty, disgust, on the rocks above the splash zone, melancholy, anger, grief, where they will dry. Next is the most delicate part of the process, deprivation, agony, boredom, the piece by piece choosing and matching of what will go where, Confusion, horror, misery. Then comes the stitching together. Using twine from old rope, she darns, tacks, hems, mending soles, repairing wounds, healing scars. She creates something new. Something infinitely more meaningful than the sum of its parts. Shall we stop there for a moment? I love the idea of... um.
1: This lass being somewhere between the sea and land in that intertidal zone. You know, that idea of we're not sure if she's human or not. I don't know in your mind if she was human, Claire?
0: I had her, because we mentioned old men of the minch, I had her more as a sort of selkie type, mythical, able to take on human form, but maybe something a bit more mysterious about her.
1: Yeah, because she is, well, if you think about selkies and seals and things, they are... Seals themselves can go between, can't they? So I think it's really interesting to put a main character or a character in that zone because we're not sure both whether they're human or not or both whether this is true or not, you know, whether this is a kind of fairy tale or a, a magical realism or whether it's a true tale, you know, that people think of as real. Something about being in that intertidal zone means that it shifts as well. So it's not just that kind of in between, but that 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 zone shifts with the tide. So sometimes it is in water and sometimes it isn't. So I kind of expect as a reader to be sometimes in something that feels like truth or real. And and sometimes I need to suspend my disbelief.
0: Yeah, and I think the geographical placement of us in in that almost no man's land, neither one nor the other, makes it easier for us to do that and gives us permission and an expectation that that's, what, that's what's coming. I
1: wouldn't have thought that it was an easy pair, really, the idea of tides and kind of almost quilting or the making of something, you know, from a lot of scraps or weaving. But actually, there's something about the shift and the regularity of tides, you know, how they come and go, and they might shift to their height. You might get a spring tide or a neap tide or, you know, depending on the way the wind is blowing, every tide is different, although they kind of, kind of appear like the same and so there's something about that act of weaving as well you know what you're working with or what you're creating is always going to be based on what you've got to hand and yet even though when you're weaving if you think of the act of weaving the repetitive act of weaving or knitting or lo- using a loom or even quilting each piece is so different because it's it's really a sum of its parts so they, they are in some ways a really natural mirror even though you wouldn't I wouldn't normally have put them together.
0: I think well so for me the rhythm is a really strong link between the two you know it's a very weaving and knitting and sewing is a very rhythmical thing as with the the tides coming in and the waves crashing on the shore there's there's a really strong rhythm to that
1: yeah, and the description of the bays, it's almost like she's not static either. She's going from one bay to the next bay. And if you think of the shape of a bay, you know, and perhaps walking the hills in between them, there is a real feeling of almost the way that your needle would go, you know, under, over, under, over. Yeah. So there's a real rhythm there as well in terms of the way you might traverse a bit of land, I guess, particularly coastal land, because as you know, there's a whole list of the caves and beaches and bays there that feel like, as you say, the language takes us on that kind of passage. I love that little sentence, I guess, or maybe it's two sentences in the middle, that's just a list of the items she's collecting that have come chewed by the fishes or brined to the max. And it made me think of something that I saw, I'm sure on the internet somewhere, probably on social media, where an artist was taking beautiful velvet gowns Something with a real texture to it, and lowering them into seawater for a period of time, and then bringing them up. And what happens is almost like what I think of as rock candy, or the salt will crystallize on the edges of the piece. And so, if you imagine quite a formal sort of velvet gown that it's that has long arms or a collar or whatever, the artist then lifted that piece out of the sea, and it was almost like a salt sculpture of that piece and it made me think of what happens and i'm sure that's not what we're meant to think of here but it reminded me of what happens to fabric at least
0: in water how it transforms and for me as well the, the my mind starts thinking oh, how did the taffeta ball get into the sea and it's not you know a bucket and a flip-flop and a, a sun hat that you know you, your mind the assumption is they they've been washed away from a beach somewhere else
1: yeah, no, it absolutely feels like they're from shipwrecks because you wouldn't want a gown except on a formal ship, you know, a ship that's going to have a, ga- a ball in the evenings. Or, and that's why, for me, it feels like the things that she's stitching together, despair, sorrow, loss, pain, suffering, despair again, are what's come off those gowns, you know, that it's reflecting that time when things weren't fulfilled, that didn't, you know, come to their rightful end or their instead of kind of wearing out smoking jackets are brined or seersucker shorts are shredded on rocks rather than being worn out so it's almost taking something that has had an end in a different way than
0: anticipated kind of cut short yeah and giving it a sort of second life to have perhaps the opportunity to meet its end as it should have
1: and there's something about taking them out and rinsing them and laying them above the splash zone so if you know we want to give these pieces life and they've been battered and in, a, in an unfamiliar environment and presumably turned into different versions of themselves. There's something about rinsing them and laying them out of danger in a way that feels redemptive so maybe too strong a word, but renewing, you know, giving them another opportunity or a second life, as you say.
0: And there's a tenderness in it as well.
1: Choosing and matching what will go, you know, is is a really beautiful, time-rich activity. I think the kind of care that that employs is something we're really unfamiliar with in our day-to-day lives at the moment. I think that idea of thinking ahead and planning and being careful and measured, rather than thinking, oh, that'll just do, which is so often my, um, my way of getting through the day at the moment. It makes me think I have a uh, two bags in my cupboard somewhere of all. One is for girls and one is for boys. Although I suspect they'll get messed up together, and in, in the end, of the clothes that the children wore when they were little, but but ones that had particular patterns that I liked or would remember. And the plan is, in my old age, is to make quilts for them, either for them or for me or both. I'd love to have a quilt on my bed that had all the fabrics of my children's clothing on it, you know, because I can remember the dresses, and I can remember the little, you know, checked shirts. And in the end, the girls demanded to wear the check shirts, and the boys often wore pink. And I also thought it'd be really nice if they have their own children to have some of those fabrics in that in that pattern. But I need to slow down and learn to quilt. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, if anybody out there has any ideas about how to do that, um, I think it'd be a really lovely. I also thought it would be a lovely. Um, in my head, it's it's a lovely thing to do as an older person because each fabric will have a memory attached to it. If I can remember so much when I'm older, so my thinking is that it will be a joyful thing to do when I have time, you know, check back here. We'll probably still be chatting on podcasts and I won't
0: have the time. But And you'll still have
1: the bags in your cupboard. I will probably, you know, but um, but I have this lovely vision of that kind of care and attention and time that it takes to make those kinds of decisions with things that are precious, which you really, I think, feel um, comes through here.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting how that comes through despite the um, section being liberally sprinkled with really sad painful words with despair sorrow and loss and anguish envy and greed and pain suffering and despair and so on but yet for me they're they're sort of overlaid with the rinsing and the choosing and the matching and the care and that last little bit that you read mending
1: souls repairing wounds healing scars she creates something new and it's almost like by the act of paying attention to the vestiges of what's left that somehow as we say we, you know we were talking about maybe redeems or brings new life or does some kind of it's not just mending it's mending something bigger it's mending and how do you ever mend you know a ship going down or a loss of a life but it feels like she's doing something that's a maybe a metaphor but metaphor is maybe the wrong word maybe a kind of in some small part an act that's bigger that takes time and energy and and maybe that's you know some kind of version of healing i don't know shall we read on and see let's read on Koigech Lass sings as she sews, notes for stitches. Though she is rarely seen, the lilting tilt of her voice is often heard wafting on the breeze. For those who pay attention, it can be detected in the sigh of a storm petrel and in the cry of a kittiwake. When a merlin chatters, locals tilt their heads and say, Our koigech Lass is busy today. Busy. She is always busy for there is so much work to be done. The blue men splash and frolic like porpoise in the hoarse sound, mocking, chiding, entreating her. Take a break, cousin. Rest your weary fingers and come play with us a while. Koigachlas shakes her head. For these seven Sabbaths past, the mournful cry of the banshee has been wailing on the wind and she knows she doesn't have much time left to complete her work. For all that has been accomplished, there is still much to do. She has stitched the bow and lined the hull. She has hemmed the stern and edged the keel, and all of these parts she has sewn neatly together. She has even embroidered an anchor to keep her vessel at peace in Achnahard Bay until the time comes to set sail. From the ills of the world, Koykech Lass has created a fine, seaworthy craft, a vessel constructed from humanity's pain. What is needed now is a rudder, for without a rudder to steer the ship, she will never complete her voyage. The rudder needs to be strong and true, double-stitched, no raw edges, for if the rudder frays, the ship will be cast adrift the brine sucking at her until her seams come apart. But lass will not contemplate such a fate. She sits on a rock, head bowed, stitching so fast her fingers are a blur. She's not singing now, but humming, the sound of vibration we can hear in our hearts. Soon, soon her work will be done. When the last stitch is complete, the threads tied off, lass tilts her head, she is listening for the keen of the banshee, the taunting calls of the blue men, but all is quiet. No birdsong, no idle chatter stirs the air. A moment so still it feels as though every creature is holding its breath. Koigich holds the completed rudder in her hands. The ship she has built of its own cargo is now ready to set sail. She looks out across the vast expanse of ocean to the horizon. When the ship reaches its destination, it will be swallowed whole by the silence
0: at the curve of the earth. All will be peace. I was wondering how this was going to end.
1: (laughs) What is she stitching, Claire? So she's stitching a boat,
0: a boat made of all the things that were lost and sending it out to over the horizon.
1: And is that some way a kind of healing? I mean, is the whole thing a metaphor for recovery from loss or recovery? You know, that idea that we have to take what's left and stitch it together when when it's finally tumbled, you know, through the kind of washer of our brains and then stitch them together and make something seaworthy again to send out? I don't know. Send them off? I don't know. It feels like that kind of, almost like a tale of,
0: you know, how healing happens or how recovery happens, I don't know. The title is Shipbuilding, isn't it? It feels like a layering of all the trauma and difficulty and and almost, it made me think of, you know, in Viking burials, the body is put into the ship with all the things that were precious to it and set alight and send off over the horizon. And the idea being that that is the way to ensure a safe passage to peace and tranquility and Valhalla, which I think is the Viking equivalent of what we would say as heaven.
1: Yeah, or that idea that you burn the things of some past life, you know, that you're trying to you have a kind of ritual fire where you let go of things that you're holding on to that, that come from a time that caused you pain. You know that idea that somehow, when they when you are involved in the act of letting them go, that they somehow create peace or certainly reconciliation in some way to that to whatever it is you're trying to make peace with, I guess. And in this case, it would make sense. You know, she's taking what's left and making it seaworthy on its own and then sending it off,
0: yeah, the idea being that you have to invest in putting something back together, yeah, before you can cast it off as it were
1: yeah and it, it's it's about that and it's not just one stage right it takes time for those things to appear and then for you to then as you we talked about rinse them and put them in a safe place where you can see them properly and they're out of harm's way and then choose how you stitch them together it's it's not just a oh yeah those are those things i'm gonna send them, put off. them in a box and yeah but that almost each of
0: them are worthy of their own consideration and i
1: love that that reading our reading of the story we're not sure if we're right Lorraine you could let us know but I love that idea that there's you know and that it's really hard work and that that takes kind of determination and people who want to come off want you to take a break and come and play like porpoises but you know that could be going through a grieving period or anything you know where people want you to come back into the world and you're not ready yet you know you're not ready to you're busy with what maybe doesn't look like work, but is actually quite hard work. And it's interesting that that is a kind of repair in some way, you know, that you're putting things together and it feels a kind of repairing. It's funny because when I first read the story, I thought it was more about, it had more of an environmental theme to it. You know, the idea that we take, you know, we need to reuse things and take them and make them something new and not just be satisfied to forever have new things. But I've completely changed my mind about what it's about. Maybe it's where we are in the year, you know, and that idea of letting things go and starting again. And and in some ways, I suppose, you know, you could think of a year as this ship, patching it all together and then letting it go. It's a really beautiful image for the beginning of the year.
0: And, and I think as well, and we've said this before in our podcast, but very often something new comes out when you're reading aloud. Because when I first read the story, I, I read it to myself.
1: Yeah, of course, um, yeah.
0: But hearing it aloud and one of the things that really stood out for me was the the reference to the rudder and stitching the rudder and what we need now is a rudder for without a rudder to steer the ship, she will never complete her voyage. And it needs to be strong and double-stitched with no raw edges. And, you know, again, that seems like a real metaphor for, you know, getting through the, the coming year or going on a journey.
1: Yeah, exactly. But also that idea that if you want to send things off, You need to have the kind of almost the strength of will or the determination, you know, that it's not maybe a physical thing, but that you need to have the determination to want them to succeed in in going away, you know, rather than forever drawing them back or letting them languish in a place where you can see them. You need to give whatever it is you're trying to let go, the strength effectively to move out of your own way, which I think is really hard, a a lot harder than it seems. We all have things we wish we could jettison, but I think, you know, having the will to do it is really important. And that feels like a rudder to me. Because again, when I was thinking about it as an environmental kind of story, I was thinking, well, again, we need the will to do that. We need the strength. We need the direction. We need something strong at the center of this conviction. So I love that image of, of a rudder. We all need a rudder this year in terms of whatever it is we want to achieve. Yeah, the boat The boat idea and that idea of being strong enough that the seams don't come apart. You know, that idea of stitching so cleverly so that the bits of your life all fit together and you, you don't let in the seawater um, or your history doesn't. It's a really beautiful image. And, and as we often say, too, we love we love stories that allow lots of different interpretations, particularly every time you read them. You know, you can often see different things, which is really important to us at Open Book. Shall we have a look at Tay's poem from his um, collection Imperium with Carcanet? Yeah, let's do that.
0: Not Unequal to Many These dreams are for the pre-human One sleep for nonsense One giant hand slipped into the earth I half bury like a shield of silk Half of one inert ritual keeping Peace keeping How's my fingers churned those mercantile chests Whilst gulleting in the tall grass, in the white graves, those suited egrets waited by the stream for their sweetbreads. Like a map, each new world opens with a knife to the body, and inside I find a sweet receipt. That paper sign, the conjured phrase I did not know was so untranslatable. Hero. Hero. What were your wanderings about? I love that last line. What were your
1: wanderings about?
0: What are your wanderings ever about? <laughs> what are one's <laughs> yeah. wanderings ever about? Uh, curiosity or, yeah, um, adventure, I guess, wanting to see the new. It's striking out, isn't it? It's, it's heading somewhere that's that it's, it's taking advantage of noticing, moving. I think for me, the the way the poem is set out on the page is really interesting as well. And if you want to see that, if you look on our website and find the newsletter, you'll see it's laid out in a particularly interesting way. And for me, there's a real sense of movement and travel.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, they all in this whole book are in that form or sort of slightly different forms, but I should say that the poems in the book are kind of a reimagining of different parts of the Odyssey, where Jay comes back at different scenes over and over again. But I loved this poem with that idea that despite the wanderings and despite the setting out and a map and new worlds, we half bury our rituals, effectively where we can find them. You know, there is that thing of coming home to find the thing in the sand that we've buried for me. Whether that's a bird in a stream or something that we know, you know, we're setting out and we're going out to see new worlds and we're opening things up. It seems in many ways the inverse of Lorraine's story of stitching together the past and letting it go. In this case, it's taking our present and burying it and going out to find the new. And yet we know as the reader, halfway up the page, a ritual is bar- half buried in the sand, where we presumably where we can find it. I don't know what an inert ritual is, but I love the idea of it.
0: Do you know, it, m- it made me think of the connection between inert gases and another word for them being the noble gases. And so uh, my brain jumps to probably a completely unintended connection of thinking of noble rituals and honourable and honouring people and traditions. And-,
1: and that works with the idea of peacekeeping and mercantile chests and, you know, the idea that we, despite ourselves almost, we half-bury our histories and our treasures you know, where we can almost in, in my head, they, they're almost in plain view for ourselves so that we can come back to them. We have that kind of anchor. And yet it has that thing of needing to set out, needing to open maps and open the world out, right? Go and see new things, go and find what else is out there, which is for me, again, like the flip of what's happening, setting out, you know, in the story, setting out our histories so that we can stay put with peace. And this somehow setting, leaving behind our history so we can set out on an adventure. I'm not sure which I'd prefer, to be honest, probably Jay's version rather than Lorraine's. Depends on the seaside cottage that I get to live in, I guess. But
0: But both of them, for me, have a a strong need for peace. You need to be at peace, or Lorraine's brings peace by the end of having gone through the process. And I have a sense in Jay's that in order to step out, you need to leave in peace. Well, I, I wouldn't say that so much as just the idea of burying the thing
1: that you're sure of, that you can come back to. So knowing that that thing is buried means that you, can, you have a sense of peace about leaving it behind and that you know where to come back to. But then that's probably, you know, everyone sees writing through their own um, particular paradigm and mine is always that wish that I have had a stronger sense of home or where I could go back to. And I think that impacts my reading of the poem
0: in some way. Yeah, I think you can't help but layer on your own experience when you're reading a poem and and taking from it what you will that inevitably is done through your own lens and your own experience. And I mean, that's the joy of hearing other people's interpretations or thoughts on a piece of poetry because what it does is it almost gives you a new lens to look through something at. And and then the joy of
1: discussing it with others is realizing that there are a thousand and one ways to... Take this last line of Jay's poem, for example. But imagine walking around with a little piece of paper that are, you know, what were your wanderings about? That question to yourself is a really interesting one. And I, I often wonder, because there's another poem that I really love about Sherwood Anderson walking out. And in the poem, he carries a note in his pocket saying, get to Elsinore. And I wonder what, what note we would write to ourselves and carry in our pockets, you know, Um, So that image of having a question to yourself in your pocket, I've carried around with me since I heard the poet read it when I was 19. What would you ask yourself? And so I love it when I see it in other people's writing, particularly in this one. What if you had that question in your pocket? What were your wanderings about? And especially if you're in one of your wanderings at the moment, you would feel like you had to make good at it in some way or recognize the value of it while you were doing it, which of course we often don't see until we get home.
0: And the idea of your personal quest, your question to yourself being so untranslatable to anyone else, All, perhaps to yourself too, but, you know, someone else's wanderings along the same road with you are not about the same thing as, as your wanderings are. I love that idea of being in your own world, but sharing the journey with someone.
1: Yeah and I, and I think in this case in this particular book they'll all relate back to Homer's journeys as well and and the Odyssey and the the, the many journeys there so that that idea that that question is is passed down through generations and generations and still is valid continues to be valid for us now is is really very moving but also says something bigger about the state of man and our rudderlessness let's just say you know our lack of clarity of vision or purpose perhaps I don't know which in some ways I think is the opposite of what Lorraine is saying in her story that idea that we have control about what we choose to keep and where we choose to go and what we choose to release or we have the capacity anyway to influence it at the very least I'm not sure that's what Jay's up to there but I love comparing them for sure
0: yeah that's a really nice uh, nice pairing thank you to Jay for that poem
1: I think that's all from us today. We've loved being in your ears. I think it's all for us, but to say we look forward to chatting again sometime soon.